Uh, we're continuing in Song of Songs uh, from verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 11. I went down to the grove of the nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley, to see if the vines had budded or if the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. Come back, come back, O Shulamite, come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. Why would you gaze on the Shulamite, as on the dance of Manahem? How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat, encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathramim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, looking towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, and the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts, then if I found you outside, I would kiss you, and no one would despise me. I would lead you and bring you to my mother's house, she who has taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the nectar of my pomegranates. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Thank you, Chris. So for those of you visiting today, we've been going through a series on Song of Songs, and uh, this is the last one in that series. And uh, if you've just come today for the first time or whatever. We don't usually have a sermon with the most explicit, sexually explicit passage in the whole Bible um, as our reading that we have the sermon from, but that's what we've got today, so welcome to church. <laughs> um, this is a section of the Bible you might want to call the sealed section of the Bible because it's probably one you haven't heard read uh, out in church, maybe. Uh, you might not have done a Bible study on it, maybe you have. Over history, um, Biblical scholars have, at different periods in the history of the church, been more uh, or less uh, uh, wanting to talk about sex. At one period in the history of the church, they were so awkward about admitting that this was about sex or even 
conceiving that it could possibly be about sex, that the, the interpretation and the reading of Song of Songs was so focused on the allegory that they would say things like, um, the woman's exposed belly is really about the fruitfulness of the church in producing offspring for Christ. And her breasts symbolise the fruitfulness of the word of God as it feeds the children of God. Um, it's those kind of extreme, awkward, allegorical readings. When I was 18 years old, uh, my nana, she gave me a set of Matthew Henry commentaries for, my, for Christmas. I don't know why. I think maybe I mentioned it in passing once and she knew what it was that I was talking about and she rushed off to Kurong and she ordered it. And um, the thing about Matthew Henry commentaries is that they're terrible. And um, uh, so you often hear, like, Mike Bird, who's at Ridley College, has lots of funny things to say about Matthew Henry. He said once, when a student cites Matthew Henry in an essay, I call them into my office, I put a copy of Matthew Henry on their lap, and I say, you may either read this cover to cover or let me hit you on the head with it. And after reading two pages from Leviticus, they beg me to hit them on the head. And another scholar said, um, I tell my students that if their grandma gives them a set of Matthew Henry commentaries for Christmas, which is exactly what happened to me, don't fret, there are proper ways to use them. First, you can prop open a window. Second, you can kindle the fire in the fireplace. And third, you can use it to create weight in the back of your car for driving on icy roads. So I'll give you an example of how bad the Matthew Henry commentaries are. When you open up Song of Songs... Uh, he tells his readers to forget that we have bodies. That's how he opens. Forget that we have bodies. Now, how ridiculous an idea of this is this? We all know that that's a stupid idea. Uh, we live as human beings with bodies, and we spend a lot of the time focusing on our bodies, don't we? We go to the gym, we, we cook meals for our food to nourish our bodies, we like to go shopping for clothes... Um, and yet, in some ways, I do believe that in church we are so awkward about our, talking about sex and about our bodies that it's like we are doing what Matthew Henry said to do, to forget that we have bodies. So that if I say the words penises or vaginas, it creates this weird tension in our body and it makes us think, this is a weird thing to hear in church. Why are we hearing those words? As if they don't exist, these things. Well, one way we get around this is we make jokes. Because we're awkward, so we make jokes. And so we have a little giggle. And so that's why I've chosen the song Business Time by Flight of the Concords, the comedy duo, to be the title of this sermon. Um, business Time. Because really the, the man and the woman in these four songs that, we, that Chris just read out they're getting down to business. So I'll just read, read you the opening verse from Business Time just to give you a bit of a giggle. It goes like this. Girl, tonight we're going to make love. You know how I know? Because it's Wednesday. And Wednesday night is the night that we usually make love. Monday night is the night, my night to cook. Tuesday night we go and visit your mother. But Wednesday we make sweet weekly love. It's when everything is just right. There's nothing good on TV. You haven't had your after-work social sports team practice, 
so you're not too tired. Oh boy, it's all on. You lean in and whisper something sexy in my ear like, I might go to bed now. I've got work in the morning. I know what you're trying to say, girl. You're trying to say, oh yeah, it's business time. So, as I said, for our lead woman and our lead man in Song of Songs, it's business time. And we're going to have a look at that. So this will be sexually explicit, but with purpose. And this is just looking at what the Bible says. Song number 16 in the Song of Songs, which starts at chapter 6, verse 11 to 12, which I've called a surprise in the nut grove. Now, you'll notice that um, there's an editorial in the NIV translation of the Bible with a he and the friends and the he, and there's a she, I think, over the page. That's an editorial. It's not necessarily written down. In, um, so sometimes the editorial um, is wrong, and the different Bible translations have different um, things to say about that. And so instead of he, I think it's probably better to say she for verses 11 and 12. So she describes an experience in the countryside, which is... In the Song of Songs, a location for intimacy. The city is a place where intimacy doesn't occur. The country, it does occur. And it's springtime. It's a time of love. She goes in the garden to check out how it is going and something unexpected happens. The two lovers have a rendezvous. And they are in the nut grove. And yes, just as today, nuts in Old Testament times were used as images for male genitalia. So when the woman says she explores the nut grove, she's talking about exploring the man's body, every single part of it. And then there's this strange line to finish off the poem in verse 12, which says, before I realised it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. What does that mean? Nobody really knows. It's kind of Hebrew poetry gone mad. Um, and probably it's something like there's a, st- a strong expression of passion of the woman towards the man. And all these four poems are going to be less about just the desire for lovemaking but the actual act itself. And that's what we get into in poem 17, which um, is a description of the dancing Shulamite. So this is chapter 6, verse 13 now, all the way to chapter 7, verse 10. So most of what's on page 4 of... The, yeah, page four of your booklet. They really get down to business. It describes the woman erotically dancing for the man and then he describes her and looks at her feet and all the way up to her head and then sexually engages with her. Um, he, she's called the Shulamite, which is a, a feminine version of Solomon, which means peace. And she plays coy and says... Why, why would you gaze on me, the Shulamite? Don't make such a fuss. You're gawking at me like I'm the dance of Manaheim. Or it's another, what she's saying is, I'm like two armies going into battle and you're looking in a distance at the two armies about to fight and you can't take your eyes away. That's what it's like with me. You're looking at me and you can't take your eyes away. And then from verse 1 of chapter 7, we get the man's experience. She, she dances, he describes everything. He starts with her sandals. He notices her sexy sandals. Some men like lingerie, he likes. 
Birkenstocks. Uh, then he lifts his eyes up from her sandals to her legs, her thighs, her hips. And they turn him on. He says, these are the work of an artist's hands. And then in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. And he's not really talking about her navel. The navel is not a place associated with fluids. He's talking about her vagina. And by now, the poem wants us to assume that sex has begun. He's tasting her wine, drinking from her cup. This is oral sex. And he says her waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. He's referencing her attractive pubic hair. He moves up her body and is captivated by her breasts, describing them like two fawns of a gazelle, which were known for their speed, their sleekness and their sensuality. So he says, I like their shape. And in verse 4 he says, Her neck is dignified and elegant like an ivory tower. Her eyes are like sublime pools of water, like the pools of Heshbon and the gate of Bathrobim, which were near the Dead Sea. Her nose is prominent like a tower. He likes a big nose. He likes it that way. And then he gets to her head and he says, your head is the crown, like Mount Carmel, with your hair flowing like a tapestry, like a royal tapestry, which also could be translated as purple. Purple being the most expensive dye and reserved for monarchs. So he's saying, you're the queen and I'm the king. He considers her completely beautiful. And this is his cry of ecstasy. Uh, He's so excited that in verse 7 he begins again. And this time he says, no, you're like a palm tree now. With his tall slender trunk, its leaves blossoming at the top. He wants to climb the palm tree and have more sex with her. He will wrap his body around hers and grasp her fruit, her breasts. He loves them and he blesses them as clusters of grapes from the vine. He loves her apple-smelling breath. What an aphrodisiac. Her mouth will be like the best wine. He wants to passionately kiss her. And she responds by passionately kissing him back. There's two more poems to go. You just thought we'd got to the end. Poem 18. She says, I will give you my love. And she does. She wants him to join her in the vineyard to see the awakening of nature. The setting is spring. We should think of the fresh smells and the pleasant temperatures of that season. It's a time of love and lovemaking, a symbol of the woman herself. She invites him out at night into the village field to make love. The city is not conducive to intimacy but the countryside is. In fact, she wants to make a day of it and urges him to get up early and spend the day amongst the vineyards. And she's saying, let's maximise the time we have together. And the vineyard is a sexually charged metaphor in the Song of Songs. It can refer to both a woman's body and to a place of lovemaking. There she will give her love to him. And at the door of her home are sweet smells. And she smells the mandrake 
the popular Mediterranean aphrodisiac. And yes, it's the same one referred to in Harry Potter, I think. It's a plant whose roots look a bit like a, a person. And, when, and the folklore said that when you pulled it out of the ground, it screamed. That's where J.K. Rowling got it from. In, the, in Song of Songs, it's an aphrodisiac. Finally, we have poem 19, which is chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. One more poem from the woman's perspective. And she says something a little bit strange here. She says, If only you were to me like a brother who was nursed at my mother's breasts, then I, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and no one would despise me. And to our modern ears, this sounds really weird. So I'm going to try and explain it to you. Um, now, in the Song of Songs, there's not like a storyline that's really obvious that goes throughout the whole lot. They're not supposed to be read that way. But you can kind of join some dots together and get a bit of a general gist of what's going on. And one of the themes is that the woman has been betrothed to Solomon by her brothers and she can go and be one of his 700 wives, but she doesn't want any part of that. They're doing it to maybe get some financial gain. Uh, no, she has found her love, the shepherd, and she has then gone off and consummated her love with him, and they're married, right? So because of that, they can't show their affection in public. And so what, she's, this, what, what I'm describing here is similar to what um, Tamar did with Judah in Genesis 38, or Ruth did with Boaz on the threshing floor, this kind of quick move to consummate the marriage. This is how marriages were often arranged in simple ways in these times. It, you know, we see this and we think, oh, they're not married, but actually that is the marriage. You know, these, this is a different tribal culture. There might have been a ceremony that occurred either side of the consummation. But this wasn't a time when you had to fill in documents for the government or go to the alpha marriage course before you got married. You know, these things didn't happen back then. The point is that there was a kind of a Romeo and Juliet scenario where their, their relationship was, you know, taboo in the culture, so she couldn't show a public display of affection. So she's saying, if I could just, you know, hug you and kiss you like I could with my brother, and then there wouldn't be any, no one would raise an eyebrow. Um, and then if I could do that, I would take you back to my mother's house, which was a place of safety and comfort, and offer you the nectar of my pomegranates. And by now, I don't think I need to tell you what that means. And the last two verses of, the la of this poem 19, song 19, repeats two lines that have been in other songs. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. In other words, he's pulling her body closer to him in the lovemaking. And then the proverb, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, because it's seriously intense. All right, so there's four very explicit poems and songs uh, from the popular collection of songs for the Hebrew people, the most popular set of songs. What's it all about? Well, I think it's got some wisdom for us about sex. And so 
Uh, and also it's got wisdom for us about the gospel. So let's have a look at that. First of all, it's clearly showing us a basic thing, which is that sex is for unity, enjoyment, and procreation in marriage. So sex is for unity in marriage. It's for reinforcing the covenant between the two people as they are entwined with each other, sharing body fluids, limbs entangled. They express their one fleshness, as Genesis 2 says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And we see that enacted in these songs. It's also about enjoyment, isn't it? They have sex and they have it again. They can't stop. They're like young honeymooners. And as far as their enjoyment of sex goes, these songs shows you, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. As far as sex is concerned, thousands of years ago, they understood things just like we understand them now. They knew how to have sex, basically. But it's also about procreation. The woman wants her man back in her mother's house, a safe place where she can conceive and continue the family line. This does not mean that couples who can't conceive or choose not to conceive have illegitimate marriages or, or illegitimate sex lives. Their marriage can glorify God in many other legitimate and important ways. But these poems and songs are about, they're also pro-monogamy. So there's this overarching critique of polygamy in Song of Songs. Uh, they're written with Solomon as the backdrop. You know, sometimes it's even called the Song of Solomon. And um, Solomon famously, as I said before, had 700 wives. But these songs present the devotion of a woman and a man in monogamous covenantal marriage. She chooses a poor shepherd over the king. So it's a thumbs down to ethical non-monogamy. I don't know if you've heard of that expression. There seems to be an article every week in the newspaper about ethical non-monogamy. Beautiful sex is sex enacted for unity, enjoyment and procreation in marriage. But the last piece of wisdom is this, and that is that sex is not everything. The truth is that sex in marriage is good when it's good, but it's not everything. Every married person's body is subject to decay and gravity. Uh, the perfection we see in these songs um, does not... It only reflects kind of that idealistic wedding night kind of scenario. Just like a brand new car that, uh, as it drives out of the, the car yard, it's never as good as it is on day one. You know, and that's what human bodies are like. It just continues to decay over time. And that will affect the sex life of the couple in different ways. The other thing is many people are not having sex. Some married people eventually stop. And then there are those people who are not married and have remained celibate. And if this is you, do not believe the lie of our culture that you need to be having sex to be a complete and fulfilled human being. Let me remind you that Jesus, the most the perfect and the most fulfilled human being who ever lived, did not have sex. It's not a requirement for human flourishing. 
It's not everything. But what we do need, what we all long for, is a better husband. We long for a better husband who loves us with a passion and a faithfulness that can never be found in human sexuality. There's a remarkable story of God, God's husbandry love for his people that stretches across the whole Bible. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord finds his bride, Jerusalem, helpless, naked and ugly at birth. He protects her. He loves her. He adorns her with jewellery to highlight her beauty. And yet, despite his devotion to her, she turns her back on him and chases after idols, sides up with foreign gods and other nations. And she took her jewellery, it says in Ezekiel 16, and, and the gifts that God had given her, and she spent them on pursuing lovers. And this led to her destruction, to her being taken captive by the Babylonians. And despite all this, the Lord God, the perfect husband, would never let her go. He restored her. He brought her back to him. He showed intense, radical forgiveness and grace. This is the kind of better husband that is everything. That is who we long for. And this kind of ultimate love, the love that we long for, which pours out radical grace, even in the face of our hurtful and selfish rebellion, is what we see fulfilled on the cross. On the cross, all that wrath of judgment that we that should have gone on us in our shame and our guilt, including our sexual shame and our selfishness, all of that went on to Jesus. And in doing so, he set us right. He wiped away our shame. He gave us a clean record. There's some beautiful imagery in the Bible. I just wanted to leave you with some, two more bits of beautiful imagery that I think we just want to hold close to our hearts. It says that God removed our torn clothes, stained by our sin, and reclothed us in the garments of Christ's righteousness to make us ready for the wedding of the Lamb. And get this, in eternity, Jesus, the ultimate husband, will delight in us, his eternal bride, with the intensity and joy of the man in our songs delighting in his lover, enraptured by the beauty of the holiness that he has created in us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, these uh, poems are intense. These songs are um, uh, vivid and they speak to the core of human existence. Um, and we thank you that um, you are the ultimate faithful lover of us, uh, that you hold us close to you and that you accept us for all our flaws. We thank you for human sexuality and we pray that we can be people that bring glory to you in our sexuality. Amen.